Hello, David. Hello, Graham. Hey, uh, my friend Jack claims yeah. that he can communicate with vegetables. Jack can talk to vegetables? Yeah, Jack and the beans talk. <laughs> uh, uh, wait, is this true? No, it's not true. Oh, oh. I thought maybe you knew it. That's yeah. my joke. Oh, oh, oh. We always start oh. with a joke. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. Okay, okay. Uh, six. I like that one. <laughs> That's what I would have given it to. Okay. I think it's pretty good. All right, can I, can I try one? Go for it. Okay. This is Thanksgiving themed. Okay. Because it's Thanksgiving week. Yesterday was Thanksgiving. So, oh, okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. I think you're going to be thankful for this one. <laughs> okay. What would you get if you crossed a turkey with a ghost? Um, I don't want to find out. I don't know. A poultry geist. Uh. <laughs> 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 All right. Yeah. Okay. That was pretty good, too. I think it was a little better than mine. But oh, I don't know. I'm not going to let the rating reflect that. <laughs> 5.2. Just to be petty. Yep. It's fair. That's how the game is played. Well, you know what? Enough of the nonsense. Let's get on with the nonsense. Welcome back to Withy Windle, a whimsical interactive show for kids who love stories, words, and groan-worthy jokes like the ones you just heard, and featuring your favorite authors and illustrators. It's part book club, part game show, and it's your weekly adventure through the wild world of wordplay. I'm David Kern. And I'm Graham Pittman. And as we said at the top, yesterday was Thanksgiving. That means it's Thanksgiving weekend. So... How was your Thanksgiving? <laughs> oh, it was great. Yeah. I mean, uh, gathered around with all the family, ate delicious food, you know, as, as one does. As one does. Yeah. What so, about you? You know, that, well, it's great. So that, like, brings me to the question of food. Should we just jump right into snack time? Let's do it. Okay. Snack time. So we have an assortment of snacks. It's almost holiday time. Yes. We have some Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, which is really an old standby for both of us. Uh, yep, I already ate one of those. And we've got... Uh, we've got a dish of red, uh, shining, glimmering peas, also known as pomegranate seeds. Oh, that's Do you what like those pomegranate are. seeds. Yeah, I love pomegranate seeds. Did you know that pomegranate seeds are a superfood? Uh, say that again. They're a superfood, like for superheroes. I think anybody can eat them. Do you think I've never thought about this before? Do you think that superfoods make people into superheroes? This is good. This is good. Um, well, I mean, I've never eaten enough of them to gain any sort of superpower. Well, there's a whole bowl here. You could try it. Okay. Why don't we eat these and see where we are at the end of the show? I love this. Okay. okay. So is there any other superfoods in the room? Um, what is a superfood? Is it what? just pomegranate seeds? Well, I, th- I mean, I think avocado and what is that? Like a kai, A-C-A-I. Acai? Acai. Acai berry? Yeah. Well, I think those are considered superfoods. What does it mean? Um, I think it means that it's super good for you. It's it's just more gooder. Right. I think it's more gooder. I think that's the technical term for okay. for what a superfood is. And more expensive. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. I, <laughs> I think that I think more good and more I think superfood is what they put on the package when they want you to spend more money on it. That's my theory. <laughs> okay. But maybe it gives yeah, you so superpowers. It's just, it's just marketing, yeah. Maybe it gives you superpowers too. Well, we're going to find out. At least we're going to find out when we eat, I don't know, roughly, what would be your guess? 75 little. I think that's more like. 250 250 yeah they're very small and that's a big bowl how about now 249 (laughs) i I brought some honey roasted peanuts because if you're going to eat peanuts you might as well put honey on them and roast them that's true i actually agree with that that's the way to eat those with that way of thinking about life before i came over you know what i had um no i had cheer wine punch 
You know what? I have that in my house right now because I saw it at the store and I thought... Have you tried it yet? I haven't. It's really good. It's good? <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's really good. Uh, it's it's cheer wine and pineapple juice and ginger ale all inside one bottle that you can buy. Oh, and for people that don't live, what, in North Carolina or the South? Yeah. Cheer wine is, is, a, is a regional soda. It's cherry. Cherry flavor. Or pop. <laughs> or just coke if you're from georgia yeah 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 it's like a it's kind of like a dr pepper but redder and probably a little more cherry in there yeah so there's a guy that comes into our bookstore who is a woodworker and he also does our story times and he is a he's, huge and he is made out of cheer wine he is yeah he's like kool-aid man but <laughs> <laughs> his name is grant and I want to shout him out because he definitely talks a lot about cheer wine and he's oh. a big fan of cheer wine punch so then I saw it at the store the other day and I thought I got to buy this, but also no free advertising. Well, for cheer wine, it's okay. That's right. And for superfoods. We also have... Um, and for peanuts, because peanuts isn't a true. brand. And peanut butter, uh, Reese's peanut butter. Oh, wait, no, that... that. So we Chocolate also have, peanut butter cups. We also have these peanut butter cookies with the Hershey's Kisses Yeah, in what do you, do you call like that? These? What do you call that? I call them uh, peanut butter cookies with the Hershey's okay, Kisses Okay, I always them. say, I think there's a name for them. And I, I I know it's not Snickerdoodle. Maybe it is Snickerdoodle. No, a Snickerdoodle is a, fit, a special kind of cookie. That's what I thought too. This is a special kind of cookie. Ha, oh, it's a different special kind of cookie. <laughs> it's its own thing. I don't. I think these have a name, but I never know what it is. We don't know a lot of stuff. Is what we're learning on this show yeah. so far. <laughs> is are these cookies a superfood? Could I, be. I mean, let's eat them and find out too. <laughs> okay, so it's Thanksgiving yesterday. Let's talk about Thanksgiving food since we're doing snack time. Oh yeah. What is your favorite of all Thanksgiving side okay, dishes? Okay, so I like side dishes. Yeah. Okay, so next to the turkey. Right. So I like to take, like, a whole bunch of Cheez-Its and put them <laughs> on the plate and, like, cover them in gravy. <laughs> Maybe a little bit of cranberry sauce on there. <laughs> that's a joke. I don't do that. That's gross. Cheez-Its and cranberry sauce. I think that's gross. It's actually kind of sounded... Test it? It sounded okay to me. <laughs> I meant for it to be gross. Um I like stuffing the best or dressing, depending. So on. you like it in the bird, though. Like you like the stuff that gets cooked. I don't care. I sure. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's probably as opposed better. to cornbread dressing that's just baked outside. Cornbread dressing. Yeah, it's like cornbread. It's a southern thing. I want it to be. Yeah, I know that. I know <laughs> stuffing, stale bread with a bunch of spices and onions and and whatever else you put in there. Stuffing. You can put it inside the bird. You can just bake it in a casserole dish in the oven. I don't care. But that's what I love. <laughs> What about you? What's your favorite Thanksgiving side dish? So, in keeping with snack time, I'm a big fan of the sweet potatoes that have the brown sugar and the pecans. You know, mm-hmm. it's like dessert sweet potatoes. I also really Is like... Is that the same thing as a yam? Uh, yeah. I mean, technically, probably not. But Yeah, if you call it a yam, it becomes a superfood. <laughs> That's right. Actually, I wonder if yams are superfoods. Not when you put a bunch of brown sugar and possibly marshmallows on And they're super... Uh, do you like white meat or dark meat turkey? Uh, both. Good answer. Are you a, do you have like ton, you like mashed potatoes? Love them. Lots of gravy. Yes. Okay. Now, do you do mac and cheese for Thanksgiving? Because some people do mac and cheese. I do especially not, especially here in the South. I never grew up with that either. I, I'm not opposed to it. I mean, it's, it's basically my cheese. It's similar to my cheese it gravy dish. <laughs> That's a great point. Okay, let's talk dessert before we move on. Oh yeah, simple, uh, easy. Pumpkin pie. Yes. Do you like pecan pie? Yes. <laughs> like apple pie yes do you want whipped cream on all of those yes would you eat ice cream yes are there any desserts that you don't want on thanksgiving uh chocolate cream pie eh. you, you, just, you basically listed my favorite thanksgiving pie okay so cho- sure but now, i'm not you put going them all on one plate yeah okay okay yeah we always have pecan and pumpkin and then 
a third pie. It's usually the third one's whatever the, the kids request. And I think this year it is a chocolate pie. Okay. Okay. I'll eat them all. Yeah. Well, that's the end of our pie segment. <laughs> <laughs> we have a great episode this week. Uh, we talked, we talked, we chatted. I was going to say chatted, but then I started saying talked. And talked it was with uh, Kate Milford, who wrote The Green Glass House and a bunch of other great things. I know you guys in your house are big fans of those books. So we had a great chat with her. Um, we also were going to talk about Charlotte's Web. We were doing three chapters this week. Do you remember which ones those are? Um, no. I've lost my book. Oh, it's right here. Okay, so uh, this week we are reading uh, chapters 13, 14, 15. 13, 14. We're well into the story now. Yeah. And uh, lots of great stuff happens. I'm going to have a, I have a question for you great. when we get to that point. So we're going to talk about that. Is it related um, to pie? Well, considering that Wilbur doesn't want to get eaten. He doesn't want to become a pie. He doesn't want to become a pie. No exactly. ham pie. Exactly. He doesn't want to become Christmas dinner. Before we get to all that, though, we should tell you about our friends, the Green Rides Hair. Do you know that they have a coupon code for us? Did we tell you that last week? We did. Do you remember what it is? Yeah, it's uh, Withywindle. Oh, that's a, that's a good one. Yeah. So you can go to the greenrider.sdsmith. Actually, sorry, greenrider, not the greenrider, greenrider.sdsmith.com, and you can enter that coupon code, and you can get 10% off. But what is, know, what is the greenrider? I'm so glad you asked, because it is an accessible online course that encourages and equips aspiring authors of all ages to go and to grow. Did you not know that, or were you just trying to help me out? I was trying to help you. Oh. You look like you were floundering. Well, like a fish? Yeah. I was just sitting here reading. I'm <laughs> <laughs> not even moving that much. Greenriders are going. They have a green light. They aren't waiting for permission or until the fear is gone or even the muse strikes. Green riders go. Green riders are also growing like a green living thing. They're alive, but they're not yet what they will become. They're becoming writers who create and share generous, excellent work. So if you want to go and grow as a writer, join beloved best-selling author S.D. Smith, Samuel Dennison Smithertons, as we like to call him here mm-hmm. on the podcast, and become a green writer. So you can try a free sample at greenwriter.sdsmith.com. And if you use that coupon code, which, Graham, could you say that again? Uh, Withy Windle. Withy Windle. W-I-T-H-Y-W-I-N-D-L-E. You get 10% off. That's probably a little fast, but I think people know what the name of this podcast is. If you don't know is. how to spell it, look at your uh, phone, because you're probably playing this on or your Or the phone. computer yeah. or iPad or whatever it is that you're using to listen so to this I, podcast. So should we tell people? I think we should tell people that we're planning on having... Samuel Dennison Smitherton's back on the podcast. He is. He's going to, he started the first season with us. Yes. And he's going to end the second season. Yeah. So this is episode seven. So there'll be episode eight, episode nine. And then on episode 10, we're hoping uh, S.D. Smith will join us again. So last year we ended the season by doing a Q&A where we kind of answered your questions. In fact, we did answer your questions, not kind of. Yeah. And we're going to do that this time, but he's going to be our guest. So you can direct your questions well, you can expect your question to also be answered by Mr. Samuel Dennison Smitherton. Yeah. So you can already write us in at podcasts at com, And if you have any questions for David or, or me, you can write them there. Or if you have questions for Sam, you can write them there too. And of course, if you also want to answer this week's riddle, which we'll get to at the end of the show, you can also email us at the same place. Yeah. Have we got any good illustrations or anything recently? Yes. Yeah, we got a lot. We got, we're still getting pumpkin head Davids <laughs> and, and, and we're still getting ones of the machine. Um, I need to post some more. Yeah. So, so where should people, if people want to see those, where, where should they go? They'll uh, go onto Instagram and search Goldberry Studios and we'll come up. You'll see a little green G 
and that's our that's our profile and you can see some of the drawings people have sent in and we were getting some pop socks drawings pop socks yes have you heard about pop socks <laughs> i've heard about the pop socks box <laughs> let's not do it again let's not do it again uh you sure yeah i'm sure <laughs> is the... <laughs> maybe if i eat enough of these superfoods yeah. this do it episode again of withy be... windle is brought to you by superfoods <laughs> have you ever wanted to be a superhero or a super student or a supercalifragil... <laughs> super, what's that word again? Supercalifragilistic expialidocious? Then yeah. you need to eat your superfoods. Eat never, your pomegranates and your avocados. I've never and, wanted to be that, so maybe I should... You've never wanted to be supercalifragilistic expialidocious? No, I don't think so. Well, you need to watch Mary Poppins then. <laughs> who, who could leave watching Mary Poppins without wanting to be supercalifragilistic expialidocious? So, Me. Anyway, well, you know what? Time to get on with the rest of the show. Uh, time for some for some book talk. Book talk. How, how about it? All right. Let's uh, take a little break, eat some snacks, and we'll be back in just a second to uh, talk about Wilbur, who is not a snack. All right, and we're back. We are more super than ever after eating those pomegranate, pomegranate seeds, seeds yeah. and Reese's peanut butter cups and so forth. Pomegranate seeds look so cool. They do. Like such a good color. Almost like a, a gemstone. It's like an aubergine. <laughs> What's that mean? It's a good word. It's like a... a like a maroon? Yeah. It's the color of um, like eggplant. It's more like... spell that? A-U-G-R... No, A-U-B-E-R-G-I-N-E. Okay. Aubergine. Oh, okay. It's a good one. It's a good word. Yeah, it's like a purpley red. So, so somewhere around maroon, but maybe a little more purple. Yeah, it's a beautiful color. That's why it's such a superfood. Oh, I see. So we're going to talk about Wilbur and Charlotte and all that. And as we know, Charlotte has been weaving words, speaking of words, <laughs> into her web. Words that describe Wilbur. Yeah. Uh, some pig was the first one. And then she did terrific. And people came from all over. And Wilbur, of course, didn't feel terrific, as you might recall. I do, yes. And then in this section, she sends... The rat down to the trash to yeah. find a word, and they try all different kinds of things. And uh, I love the first word that he brings back from the dump is uh, crunchy. And they're <laughs> like, like, "No, no, no we no. don't want her. Th- we don't want them thinking about bacon." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the rat's like, "What? Well, fine, I'll get another one." Eventually, he comes around to radiant. Yeah, so radiant. it got me thinking. Uh-huh. If you were Charlotte, yeah, what word would you put into a web? To describe Wilbur. To describe Wilbur? Yeah. Funny. <laughs> Silly. Silly pig. <laughs> Maybe that wouldn't get the attention that she's looking for, though. I like that Wilbur was trying to act radiant. Yeah, he was doing, like, somersaults. That was great. Yeah. Yeah, he looked... I mean, he he did look pretty cool. And she was... And she, <laughs> she was like, I don't know that that was necessarily radiant, but it'll, it'll have to do... Yeah. I like that she had to test it out. Yeah. She's like, well, Radiant might work, but let's let's see first. Yeah. Let's see if Wilbur could be Radiant. Does this book seem like it's changing at all to you as uh, we go? What do you mean? Well, remember how last time when we talked about our last book, we mentioned the word foreshadowing? Mm-hmm. And how it kind of is previewing what's to come? Sure. Does it feel like that's happening in this book as we go? Oh, okay. So you're talking about um, in in The Railway Children. Yes. So there's more foreshadowing. Yeah. Um, maybe. It feels like it's getting a little sadder here. Like, in this book? Yeah. Oh. I, and even, because you know how Charlotte said that thing about, 
She doesn't, she's got to lay her eggs. She can't go to the fair. She doesn't have much time she has. She's dropping little hints into the story that yeah. maybe she's not going to be there forever. Sure. If you know the story, you know what's going to happen. But it's definitely been kind of an idyllic farm story so far. Yeah. But it's starting to get, introduce a little bit of sadness. It even seems like Fern kind of is in tune with that. Yeah, I could see that. And one thing that kind of stuck out to me is at the beginning of chapter 13, where she's first writing terrific into her web, just, it, it talks about how there's different types of web that she can produce. And yeah, one yeah. is like a structural one that's tough and one is sticky. Mm. And she's thinking, I better write these words in my, in not the sticky one. Mm. Cause I don't want flies spoiling it and stuff. These are last. So I actually think there's, um, super web, a super web, <laughs> but it's, she's kind of sacrificing a little bit. Like she's oh, yeah. using her web for the message and not to catch food. Oh, that's for true. Herself. So yeah. she's kind of going without in order to save Wilbur. So there's a little about bit of like self-sacrifice. And he doesn't really realize it yet. No, he's he wouldn't not aware. That. Yeah. But she's had to store away some insects to make sure she, she has enough to eat yeah. while she does this. So I thought that was pretty neat. And then meanwhile, of course, we've got Fern kind of hanging out. Yeah. And she's, she's listening to the stories of Charlotte, the, the stories that Charlotte tells Wilbur at bedtime about, if her cousin catching a fish and all that. Yeah, yeah, and then yeah. Fern goes and tells her mom, and her mom's all worried about it and goes to the doctor. To the doctor. Yeah. I, I love that part. So something struck me here in okay. that passage because her mom goes to the doctor. It it's yeah, yeah. No, it was a good it was a good feeling. Oh, okay. It's like getting hit with a feather pillow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, so the mom goes to the doctor and she's like, uh, my daughter's kind of crazy, I think. And the doctor uh kind of interrogates her a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Yeah. And asked her questions. And it reminded me of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Yeah. With, with it Uncle Andrew? Yeah. Where Peter and Susan go to him and, and say, like, Lucy's Lucy. crazy. Yes, exactly. Because he, the doctor, seems like a pretty good doctor. Kind of like the professor. Yeah. Asks very pointed questions to the mom. Very logical questions mm-hmm. about what, what Fern is, is seeing and saying. He's like, ah, this sounds okay to me. Uh, <laughs> and you're kind of left with like, oh, okay, maybe maybe Fern's... Or the the mom's leaving thinking, okay, maybe. She feels much better. Yeah, she feels much better. These are just, this is just how kids are. Kids see the world in ways that we do not, as the, the doctor says. Yeah. I wonder if... Um, and they are all experiencing something kind of miraculous with the web. It's true. And the writing. That's true. Well, and, and of course, I love what he says. Do you ever think that maybe a, a spider web is a miracle in the first place because a spider is born knowing how to make it? Yeah, exactly. Um, this book seems like it's a lot about seeing the world with a sense of awe because fern seems to just have that naturally she doesn't need to be convinced of it she just looks around and she sees wonderful things all around her yeah i think a lot of kids who are listening are probably like that i think yeah i think so too and at the at the end of that passage um the doctor says well how's avery She's like, oh, Avery's fine. Of course, he gets into the poison ivy and gets stung by wasps and bees and brings frogs and snakes home and breaks everything he lays his hand on. But he's fine. Good, said the doctor. But that reminded me of Lucas. That yeah, reminded was, me of your kid. Gonna, exactly. It sounds just like Lucas. Hi, Lucas. <laughs> <laughs> Lucas definitely is a kid who has a sense of awe. Any, anywhere you go, within three minutes, Lucas will have a, found a lizard. Yeah. There'll be a lizard crawling on his head or his arms or something like that. He's a master lizard catcher. And if you, and if you don't pay... To, if you're not paying attention, that lizard will be on you <laughs> as well, because he'll have stuck it on you or, or up your pant leg. Yeah, or perhaps in his pocket. The other day, did I tell you this? Hmm. 
uh, we were at we were at my parents' house and we're watching a football game and we're sitting there and all of a sudden he reaches into his pocket and he goes, oh yeah, and out of his pocket he pulls a lizard. And the lizard was there for a long time because <laughs> he found it at our house. He put it in his pocket to, to hang it, out with him and, and he it, brought it all the way over to my parents' house. So the lizard got its like first car ride. It did first it, football. Well, I guess game. I can't a hundred percent be certain it was the first time it had ever watched a football game, but it seems likely that it was its first football game. Yeah, yeah. And what happened? You put it back in his pocket and take it home? Well, I think he actually put it outside in my parents' backyard. Oh, which, a whole new world. It's a whole new world, which is both good and bad, you yeah. know? <laughs> <laughs> Afterwards, I kind of wondered if that lizard had a lizard friend that was missing, and it was been, it's been trying to get back o- three miles back over here. Ever uh, since. You, it might, you might see it again. It's like <laughs> Homeward Bound. And if anybody could be, would be able to tell the difference between tiny lizards, it would be, <laughs> be Lucas. <laughs> Well, hey, anything else you want to add about this this section? Because we're getting to the stretch run. We've started to see that maybe Charlotte's... Maybe there's something a little sad about Charlotte. Um, we're getting close to the fair. Like, Wilbur's starting to get worried. Yeah, so in the in the last chapter, the, the crickets, um, it's talking about how the crickets know that summer's leaving and, and we're kind of seeing a, a change of time or that, that something's changing. Um, the seasons are moving. Yeah. And then Wilbur finds out he's going to go to the fair because of all those words. Terrific. What was the other one? Splendid. Um, no, radiant. radiant, radiant. So the farmers are realizing, Oh, our, our pig's pretty special. Let's put him in the fair. So that is where Wilbur's off to for our next section. And he really wants Charlotte to come. And she says, I will, if I can, but I don't, I'm not sure if I'll be able to. Are you, what are you anticipating? Like, what are you looking for as we go to the rest of the next I hope chapters? he wins best animal. <laughs> <laughs> Most radiant animal. Most bestest super, not super food. We don't want him to win super food. <laughs> Superest pig. Well, with that, we're going to move on to our conversation with Kate Milford. But before we need, before we do that, we need to remind you that this episode is brought to you by Superfoods, which is the uh, <laughs> superfoods like goji berries, hemp seeds, chia seeds, and wheatgrass. Wait, wheatgrass? Apparently. Oh, that's the that's the grass you juice and you make into a green liquid and, and drink. Right. Right. Wheatgrass. Did you know that over the years 2011 to 2015, the number of food or beverage products containing the word superfood, superfood, or supergrain doubled? Grains such as quinoa, barley, spelt, and millet are marketed as heritage or ancient superfoods because they have been consumed over centuries, are perceived as a whole food, and require minimal processing. Wait, ancient superfoods? Yeah, did you Okay, know? I don't want regular superfoods anymore. Just ancient ones, yeah. I only want Get rid the, of these pomegranate seeds. We yeah, just want to have we don't millet. Want, <laughs> we want no modern superfood. We just want grains like quinoa and barley. Quinoa. Quinoa. Well, anyway, on to our conversation with Kate Milford. We just ate some millet and some quinoa, and, and we're here to, to introduce you to our conversation with Kate Milford. That Kate. was a lot of millet. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a lot better when you have some pomegranate with it. <laughs> Did you know that Kate Milford is the New York Times bestselling author of the Edgar Award winning National Book Award nominee, Green Glass House? I did know that. She is also the author of Ghosts of Green Glass House, Blue Crown, The Thief Knot, and many more. She lives with her family in Brooklyn, New York. And you can learn more at greenglasshousebooks.com or you can go to katemilfordwritesbooks.com. It looks like you can find her online. Say on Twitter at Kate Milford. Wait, Grab- did you say what's her website called? KateMilfordWritesBooks.com. That's a good website. <laughs> I like that. I'm gonna have to check that out. So, 
you have been a fan of these books for a while. Tell us how you were introduced to Kate Milford's books, and then we'll get oh, over to our conversation. Uh, that's a good question. I think it was just I stumbling across them and seeing that that cover. Like they were on the floor and you tripped. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the big stack of them. <laughs> uh, no, I think I think I just was looking for books in the bookstore for the kids and came across that cover. Yeah. And that title, Green Glass House. I was like, I need to get this book. So what do you guys like about... Oh, man. So it's a it's what's c- kind of called a cozy mystery. It's like a bunch of people kind of stuck in a house. In this case, in, a ho- in an old hotel. Um, and, and the main character, Milo, usually during during this season, this Christmas season, he gets the kind of the house to himself. There's like not a lot of guests coming by. And so he's really looking forward to that, to kind of spending the time by himself reading and, you know, spending time with his family, eating, eating good food. But like guest after guest after guest on the same day all show up and they're all a little strange and mysterious okay. and they all seem like they have a reason for being there. And he, he uh, takes it on himself to kind of figure this out. Well, Kate Milford's newest book is called The Raconteur's Commonplace Book, which is part of that series. Uh, we talked to her about that. We talked to her about her inspirations and, of course, asked some of the questions that, that you all like to ask, such as Cheetos and Doritos and so forth. So let's get it over to our conversation with Kate Milford. Kate Milford, thanks so much for being here. We are so excited to chat with you. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here as well. So Graham is in particular... A big fan of your books. And that's not to say that I'm not a fan, but the Pittman family and the Pittman children are like Kate Milford. Graham, are they super fans? Yes. We're super we're super fans. Yeah. Super fan family. That's so cool. How old are your kids? Uh so my oldest is ten. Uh but I think we read Green Glass House maybe when he was seven. Oh, that's lovely. Uh, yeah. And then we've read the subsequent ones and we actually just went back last year and reread Green Glass House. It, it's it's a good book for when you're stuck inside and can't go out. Um, <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, that's true. So uh, we've got lots of questions here from kids who send in yeah. questions um, about the authors and they really want to get to know you. So some of the questions are about you. And then some of them, of course, are about the books that you have written. One of the questions that we always start with is about you, but I suppose it could also be about your books. I'm just not sure how. The question is, <laughs> are you a Cheetos or a Doritos person? Oh, Doritos. Um, well, that, that was fast. Oh. Absolutely. Um, because I mean, so many reasons, beginning with the fact that I have a little bit of like a control problem and the Cheeto <laughs> dust is so much more yeah. like a communicable disease than like Dorito <laughs> dust, I think. Um, and also, I, I, I think Doritos also have the benefit of having a cool ranch flavor, which I really like. But um, my kids are Cheetos people. I think if you, they'd be happy with either. But if you held one up, they'd go for the Cheetos every time. And I can't break them of that. And mm. yeah. yeah. At this and point, I feel it's like, a vice. Yes. Yes. I've, I feel like that's the correct answer. Um, and, and one of the big benefits to Doritos is you can eat them in secret. Whereas in Cheetos, you got the dust all over. It's like, you know, it's like a crime scene. Yeah, but Doritos crunch. So, like, you got to be in a soundproof room oh, true. if you want to be sneaky about that. And either way, the bags are a dead giveaway. Like, I don't think you can keep either way. Which maybe relates in the sense that, like, yeah, the dust would be a dead giveaway if you were, like, that, that would be a good plot point in a mystery novel. I would be shocked if no one's already done that. Um, <laughs> particularly in like a middle grade setting where Cheeto dust could be 
like would make so much. Also, I wonder how it would do as a fingerprint medium. <laughs> True. So, so, but could you, would you have to have some kind of like knockoff brand of Cheetor or Dorito or can you use that in a book without having to pay for licensing? I think you can use it. I think that that kind of thing is, um, I don't want to say fair use because that's such a specific thing, yeah. but like I think you can yeah. use brand names if you're not like making claims and stuff on there, like about them. Um, it's not like a movie where their logo is on it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like free advertising. So yeah. are you a coffee or a tea person? Coffee, 100%. Uh, like you just drink coffee all the time? Literally all day. I mean, I usually switch to decaf at some point trying to be a reasonable human. But um, yeah, we we do. We are a tea household in the sense that I can make peppermint tea for my kids. And like we like we'll sit and have a tea party and it feels like a thing. Yeah. But I'm, I'm always like trying to mask my disappointment that it's not coffee while I'm doing it. I well, want to love tea. I love the one, idea. One day they'll drink coffee, too, like as much as you do, maybe. Yeah. I mean, girl can dream. So cake or cookies? Oh, now see, that depends. That depends on, on what I, I had a giant frosted sugar cookie yesterday that I'm still dreaming about, but Mm. generally I feel like I can bypass, I can bypass either of those without like, I mean, I'd be sad about it, but there isn't one where I'd be like, I must have that. So this is one of those hard hitting questions, but when you say a giant frosted sugar cookie, do you mean it was frosted? Like it's a Christmas cookie? Yes. No. Mm. Cause it was like, you know, like the, I feel like the Christmas cookie frosting is that like icing that's kind yeah. of like, yeah, no, it wasn't like that. It okay. was like true frosting. And it, oh. my niece who gave it to me claimed that it was watermelon flavor frosting. Mm. And I'm not sure she's four. So what does she know? But like um, <laughs> I mean, four year olds know a lot of stuff. Mine is peeking in through the window here, like as we speak, but like, <laughs> I'm not sure that I would have identified it as watermelon, but it was like, a, it was a cookie the size roughly of my head. And it had like this like gigantic layer of fraud. It was the, honestly, it was the mm. best of both worlds. And maybe that's why I can't choose right now. Cause that cookie was so much like a cake. <laughs> mm. So then in general, are you a, do you prefer sweet or savory? She's, she's thinking. Sweet, but again, it depends. Like, am I putting a piece of pie up against a steak? Because that's going to be a different conversation than like if I'm putting a piece of pie up against Doritos, in which case I might go for the pie. A piece of pie up against a steak. That's a, but if you pie up against a steak, I'm going to go for the steak, probably. That's probably... Well, I, don't, well, I mean, why, wait, why are we only having dessert and not the main course of this, this hypothetical I meal? I mean, because what's your sweet main course going to be? I just immediately went to like... True. You know, True. It, that's fair. Like steak right now, so I guess that's why I went there. Yeah. Well, but thanks a lot. Now I'm hungry. I haven't had lunch. <laughs> Sorry. So. Well, our, our our entire line of questioning so far has been food related. It's almost like we're a food podcast. Or something. <laughs> you know, it's it's kind of relevant though. Like I feel like there's there's a lot to be said for food and books. Like apart from just like right. they are cool things independently. I really like when books have food in them. Like I really like reading food writing, but I also really like when books have food in them because I feel like it's a level of detail that just makes something a little more real to me sometimes. Like I want to know what kind of pancake thing, if I'm reading about a made up place, like I want to know like what kind of pancake thing they have. Cause I feel like <laughs> every culture has like a pancake thing yeah, it's and like a crepe or something. Yeah. Yeah. You know, or um, so like immediately I'm like, I, I want to know what kind of pancakes this place has. So I promise to let Graham ask some questions at some point. Um, yeah. <laughs> it'll be late, much, much, much later though. But um, 
Can you give us an example of a book or two like that you love the way they write about food? I remember being like six years old and reading Farmer Boy from the the, um, the Little House books, and they're talking about pie for breakfast and donuts for lunch and so much food in that book. And my mom would always say, "Well, if you want to get up at five a.m. and milk the cows, I'll give you pie for breakfast." Yeah. So do you do you have any examples <laughs> of of scenes with food that you love? One of my favorite food scenes is sort of like tied up with a general like favorite winter Christmassy kind of scene, which is like every year and I'm coming in, this is again, like this is what I'm craving right now because the weather is changing, but I'm not quite ready to start it. But every year in December, I read, reread The Dark is Rising when they're coming up to their Christmas celebrations there. And he's, you know, his mother is a farmer's like descendant. She's a farmer herself. She's descended from farmers. So like she's doing exactly that. Like she's making this whole like gigantic meal, but they talk about what foods there's going to, you know, what foods she makes every year. Like when she made the desserts, like three months ago, she made the Christmas puddings and they've been sitting in the back of a you know thing for three months. And then three weeks ago, she made the Christmas cake and now they're icing it. And it just goes on and on and on. And they're talking about like the room, but also like the the stones of the kitchen floor and all of this, the, the food discussions are great, but also it just, you feel like you're in that room and you know, you're hearing people decorating the tree over in the next room. And over here, there's like, he's got siblings bickering. That's one of my favorites, but it's the food, but it's also like the, the whole thing. And then I'm trying to think of another example in like middle grade. But when I think about people writing about food, my favorite favorite is MFK Fisher. And I haven't reread her books in probably a couple years, but I can't put them into storage. They're all in my kitchen. But when she talks about as a kid trying new foods and how they're tied with places for her, and she has all of these different memories related to, you know, the place where she had chocolate in the mountains and the chocolate was so bitter she could barely eat it. But then one of the people she was traveling with gave her a piece of bread and she, and he was like, take a bite of each and they, and chew them together. And then it, she's like, it was just this whole new thing. And I, I think that just to me, she writes about, food as memory and that it's tied to places and people. And that's, um, that's something that always fascinates me. She read, which, what was her book called? Is she the one that wrote how to eat a wolf or something like yes. that? Yes. How to cook a wolf. How to cook a wolf. Yeah. Yeah. Which um, also was, seems like it could be the name of a middle grade novel. Yeah. <laughs> it would be a good one. Um, I think you stick wolf in the title of anything and I'm probably going to want to read it. It's <laughs> all right, Graham, I've got cookies. So um, you need to ask questions now so I can eat. Yeah, so uh, Kate, when we were reading Green Glass House for the first time, we definitely noticed um, the amount of food in the book. And it seemed like everybody was always drinking something delicious. And so like, (laughs) we would point it out to each other. And then obviously, we had to go make hot chocolate or cider or, you know, you know, one of those delicious hot Christmas uh, drinks. So when you're writing, are you is there like, there has to be snacks nearby. Are you like that type of person or are you very focused? I'm, um, I struggle with focus kind of in all situations, but I'm not really a snacker. I'm, I'm like that, but I, I need, like I've got water right now, but usually it's like a cup of coffee all day long, whether it's yet yeah, like some point I try and switch to decaf, but that's kind of what I want to have all the time. And it, before COVID I used to go, so we're in a, an apartment here, um, And I I do have an office, but right now it's so full. Like that's where like presents are starting to go. But also I've been accumulating art supplies like crazy during COVID. So it's not a usable space right now. 
But before COVID, I would go and sit at our local diner and I'd sit there for hours and hours and hours. And they're so sweet for like 10 years. They've like let me basically camp out at this one table. That's awesome. They're fantastic. And they just bring me coffee and seltzer. And, you know, I might go through a couple meals while I'm there, depending on like the time frame too. But it was, I have a picture that I use sometimes in my school presentations that shows this giant cup of like all of the coffee creamers and it's like piled and no lie. Like one day I went in and someone was like, are you, are you going to be working today? I'm like, yeah, I'll take a cup of coffee. And they brought me one cup of coffee and this giant thing of all these creamers. (laughs) And that particular waitress knew I was only going to use one per cup. So she was just anticipating it was going to be like a 20 cup day. (laughs) Yeah. It's good to be known. (laughs) (laughs) So Kate, can you talk a little bit about what books you enjoyed as a child? Yeah. Um, I loved and still love the Westing game. Um, Fantastic Mr. Fox, The Dark is Rising, that whole series. Um, I can remember, so my sister and I going on family road trips, and there, the, there was a car copy of the Westing game, and there was a car copy of Fantastic Mr. Fox. And she was four years younger than me, but we were, you know, I mean, there was a lot of overlap in what we were reading and we just would pass those two back and forth. Like, um, every road trip, one of us would be reading one of them. Um, the dark is rising. I love those stick with me. Cause I still go back to those. Mm-hmm. I was always a fantasy reader. I think I read a lot of Zilpha Keatley Snyder and um, she has such great atmosphere. Like I remember that I think being those, and I'm trying to remember which it was, whether I want to say it was the Egypt game, but I'm not sure. But like the, one of the first times I was like, this is ominous and I don't even know what's happening yet. Like <laughs> just her, the atmospheric quality of those, um, reading short stories, like short mystery and horror and ghost stories. And my parents would find me like old anthologies. Number one about a guy who was being eaten by ants. A whole anthology was about that? No, there was one story in this anthology. Oh. I'm trying to remember like what it was as I'm saying this. I'm like, I remember that blue book that had the story with the guy being eaten by ants. <laughs> I'm going to have to, I think I do still have that book. I'm going to have to go find it and figure out what that story was. So it seems like a lot of the book, these books that you read as a kid have certainly influenced. My kid is popping his head up here. Um, is uh, influenced the things that you wrote. So for those kids who have not read your books or maybe you're new to them or something like that. Could you just do a quick summary of what you like to write and, you know, the kind of the, the, the like Hollywood pitch version of you. Of yeah. Um, I am, you may have noticed super bad at being brief, um, but yeah, I, so there, we'll just mute you after a while. <laughs> That's good. It's like <laughs> they're so far, they're all set in a shared world, which I have started calling the roaming world. Um, and they're all interconnected. So some have actual sequels, but for the most part, you can pick up anyone and dive in and, and go from there. Um, and they're set in a world that is fantastical in a way that is like our world, but with the sort of weird and the uncanny kind of dialed up to 11. So there is magic in it, but it is, um, it's the magic of the weird, I guess is I, I think the best way there's, um, there's a character in the raconteur's commonplace book that describes in one of the stories, like finally sits down and describes the magic system. And he talks about like all of these just little strange things. And he's like, I started to see that there was this pattern of just all of these little strange things that, that were exactly as strange and supernatural 
as they appeared at first glance. Um, I really like weird history and I like folklore. So these books have a ton of folklore to them. Mm. The ones that are historical, um, I try and find places in history where strange things happened or there were um, traditions and entertainments and rituals that to me, looking back now, seem a little bit fantastical. Um, My first book, The Bone Shaker, um, a lot is made of a medicine show, a traveling medicine show that comes through this uh, Midwestern crossroads town. And a medicine show was, was very much like a traveling fair, but they literally like were traveling through to sell medicines, oftentimes legitimate ones, oftentimes not. <laughs> and there would be entertainments because sometimes that was the fair that was coming through town. And so like you were going to sit through somebody trying to sell you snake oil, but you might get to see like, you know, a movie that actually would be set up And in that era, that might be the only time you have got to see a projected movie anywhere. Mm -hmm. And then a number of them are mysteries. Green Glass House is one of those. And that's definitely a good place to start. Sort of a cozy Christmassy, lots of weirdos in a big old rambly house that has secrets. So that's, that's kind of, that's kind of the, the world is an overview. And sometimes it's big stories where kids have to sort of save the world. And that would be like the bone shaker and the broken lands. So if you like, darker, more fantasy driven things with like huge stakes. That's where I would go. If you like cozier stakes stories, like a ribeye, like we were talking about earlier. <laughs> so like, wait, like which one? Like a ribeye, like you were talking about earlier. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's probably a good, yeah. Um, but if you prefer <laughs> hot chocolate and pie, um, you can start with green glass house. Um, there's almost Sorry. always, oh, it's okay. Yeah. This is this kind of like, this has a good parallel. Um, and they all have to do too with storytelling. There's almost always an element of someone, some character in the book, maybe more than one telling someone else a story, mm. um, which is something that I love to play around with. So we're going to get to some questions from our uh, listeners and your readers, uh, but you just mentioned the Raconteur's Commonplace book, which I believe that's the newest book of yours, correct? Yes. Okay. That is a book that the characters in the book in Green Glass House are reading. And was that always the plan yes. for that book is to, to spin that off um, into its own thing? No, I don't think it was, but it sort of became something I wanted to do fairly quickly afterward. Um, I don't plan a lot. It looks like <laughs> I plan a lot because of the interconnections in these books. But a lot of times things that pop up later or that I pick up later threads, I do like to sort of, I think of it like leaving breadcrumbs. Like, I might not know where I want to use this, but I know I want to come back to it. I know it's going to have a bigger importance. I just don't necessarily know what yet. But there is this tradition, um, and it, you know, if there's the Canterbury Tales, there's the Holly Tree Inn, but there's also just like a general social tradition in a lot of places of like sharing a story as a way of sharing something of yourself, particularly if you are a guest somewhere. And so when Milo in Green Glass House has all of these strange people show up at his family home, which is also an inn, and they're all sort of snowed in and they're all kind of being dodgy. He has a book that, in fact, one of the guests gives him called The Raconteur's Commonplace Book. Um, And it was very much inspired for me by The Holly Tree Inn, which is a Dickens book in which there's a frame narrative and then different guests tell different stories. Um, And I think in that case, the stories were actually written by different authors as well in, in the case of The Holly Tree Inn. But Anyway, in this book, people are flooded into an inn and they all pass time telling stories. But in the Raconteur's Commonplace book, there is a bigger mystery sort of running in the background. And little by little, you realize that in telling these stories, the very secretive guests are giving 
clues to who they are and why they're there and what they want. And so Milo reading this book gets this idea that maybe he can get his guests talking and that they will inadvertently give something of themselves away and give him a clue as to why they're all there. Um, I, I do think, and it's something that, you know, writers struggle with a lot to varying degrees or not struggle with, but you know, you tell a story, you're telling something about yourself, whether you want to or not. So that's how Milo sort of goes into it in Green Glass House. So at the same time that I Green Glass House came out, um, I had one of these little self-pubbed guys come out at the same time. And I, oh no, this one was with Broken Lands. All right, so it was Blue Crown. So I'd had two of these guys come out and they are connected in their own specific way. And I had this idea that I would self-publish Raconteur's Commonplace book at some point as the link between those two books in its own, it would take me a million years to explain how it connects. But, and then very much to my surprise, my editor um, at Clarion Books was like, no, I, I think we'll take that. Like we, we want to publish that, which is great because um, she is brilliant. And every time I work with this woman, I become a better writer. And so I think the structure of the Raconteur's Commonplace book and all of these different moving parts to create what I had said it was in Green Glass House, this framing narrative that conceals a bigger mystery in which the different stories told by 15 different guests are puzzle pieces and clues. That's a neat thing to say exists in a book that has not been written, but to actually do it um, was a challenge. And I, I owe a lot of the fact that it works. If you think it works to my editor. Um, <laughs> yeah. My own things. So, so you're kind of talking about the complexities of all of these stories. And we, there's a question here from Sarah um, she's 12. She asks whether you come up with characters, setting, or plot first. Oh, man. That's such a good question. I think plot is always last. Um, and and I feel like if like one of the weaknesses that I have is that I don't like to plan. And so I spend a lot of time retrofitting and a lot of time in revision and a lot of time figuring stuff out as I go. I think for me it tends to be a setting and a character and combination. And it might be something for, for most of these books, because they're interconnected. A lot of times it is, I'd like to set a book set during prohibition. So who, who have I introduced in a previous book who might be around doing something interesting in like 19, what, 29 or 24, like in that era and where would they be? And then I'm thinking, well, like nag speak isn't part of the United States and has this tremendous smuggling history prohibition in nag speak could be really interesting and who might have been involved in that and so then from there i start thinking about the questions of who else might have been there what might the conflict be and i start building it out from there that's hmm. usually how it happens so madison asks um this is kind of piggybacking on that last question because you, you said that you don't plan a lot but then she asks about the plot twist at the end of the first book. And she says, you know, did you at least plan that part? Like, do you, are you completely surprised when you have a plot twist or do you plan that? Do you at least plan that part? Like, are you, are you completely surprised at your own stories? Um, I feel like every book is different, but that is a good example of one that I did know early on. But on the other hand, I did not know it when I first sat down to start writing the book. Like, I think I got three chapters in, I think, um, I think the the person who is most relevant to that plot twist shows up um, and I wrote a version without the twist, just of those, the, the very first chapter in which that person interacts with Milo. 
and it was not interesting. And then I was like, eh, let's, you know, think of some crazy blue sky thing. What if? And then I was like, oh, wait, that could be really interesting. And so from that point on, I think from the, but by the time I offered a proposal to my editor, I knew that. Um, but then even knowing that, so I had to go back and fix like the first chapter or so, but even knowing that that's a really good example of where having an editor is a really, really helpful thing because, and I, I could give you specific examples, but I don't want to spoil the twist for anyone who doesn't know, but um, a lot rides on making sure that everything's internally consistent with any plot twist. Like if you're just throwing something in there in order to like yank the rug out from under your audience, that it can, a twist can feel very unsatisfying if you can't look back and say, Oh man. Okay. I see. Like you, as a reader, it can be satisfying to have a plot twist if you can then look back and see, see, oh, this was set up. Maybe I might have spotted that or you have an inkling. But if it really truly is like the author trying to get the better of you, I think that can feel unfair as a reader. Mm. Um, and I'm not saying that there's no context in which you know a, a writer should do that because everybody has their own methods and every story does something different. But I think a twist is really satisfying when all the pieces are there. And that's where my editor was fantastic because she helped me find all the places where it might not have been internally consistent without her oversight. And she asked a couple really important questions that um, I think readers would have asked if she hadn't. And so a lot of, of that kind of thing with twists too, is figuring out like what could pull people out of this or make them not believe that twist. Mm. So Olivia is asking what the inspiration for the deep history of Nags Peak is. And do you have plans for books that have Nags Peak history and legends that Milo would have heard and known? Ah, well, so I started writing about Nags Peak the year that the Bone Shaker was out on submission. So this would have been about 2007. I started writing the travel website and that was my husband set it up because he could see that I was bored and I was annoying him. And so he was <laughs> like, you like playing around with places as characters, which I did even at that stage. And he was like, let me set you up a travel website and you can use it like a sandbox. And so that's when I started writing about Nagspeak. And it was very much inspired by like um, the Outer Banks and Topsail Island, North Carolina, a little bit Key West and a little bit all these small towns where I grew up that I grew up near, I grew up in Maryland, um, just outside Annapolis. So all of these little Chesapeake Bay towns where we would go on these road trips I mentioned before with my parents and they would take us to all these little towns. Um, and so Nagsby kind of grew out of that. And because I was thinking about the place rather than any books that I might set there, um, I think that's where a lot of the history came up because I was sort of thinking about what would be interesting and what would I like to think about? What would I like to know about a place like this? Mm. And then the folklore pieces now, some of it is nag speaky stuff that, that has been mentioned in other books that I'm, you know, wanting to get back to. And some of it is folklore that is shared stuff throughout the roaming world. Um, and yeah, I feel like every time I get to go back, we're going to get more of that. Um, next year's book, theoretically, um, as long as we haven't been pushed out of it with like COVID delays and, you know, paper shortages and whatnot, um, is a book called Rialto, which is set, um, in a town in the Midwest with an abandoned amusement park, which, and the abandoned amusement park, the theming of it is very much based on the folklore of not just Nagspeak, but the roaming world. But there is a 
There is a themed land inside it that is based on nag speak. And then I have Wild Iron coming out, which is actually the first book that I wrote that was set in Ag Speak and deals very much with the sentient iron that pops up in not all of the books. It isn't referenced in Green Glass House, really. There are a couple references to it, but not overt ones. But it's in Thief Knot, it's in The Left Handed Fate, and it makes a big appearance in the Raconteur's Commonplace book. Snag Speak has this sort of self organizing iron that kind of behaves like plants and does its own thing. So Wild Iron is a lot about that. Are you a Ray Bradbury fan? Yes. Because it feels like, what is it? Which is the one with the, is it Dandelion Wine or something this wicked this way comes? Those two are very closely related. I think they're sort of those two in October country, but something wicked this way comes was absolutely formative for me. And the bone shaker is in many ways, my love letter to that. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. So we have a question here from one kid who says, I think it's apparent that research plays a big role in your writing. Um, thinking specifically of all the nautical information in the left hand of fate, among other things. So are you researching as you are writing or do you do a bunch of research on a topic until you feel fluent in it and then dive in? I guess this is, you did the travel website. So maybe it'd be a little of both. Yeah, it's a little bit of both, but with the nautical ones, um, I did a lot of research first, but then um, it's, it's ongoing because sometimes like I think the best indicator that I need to go back to it is when I get stuck somewhere. Like I think for me, um, writer's block, if it's not just general annoyance and laziness, if I'm working on something that is driving me nuts right then, it's that I don't, there's something that I don't know and I don't know what it is that I need to know to get past a certain point. And so that's when I usually go back to the research, but then it's, it's, it's a challenge because you don't, if you don't know what it is you need to know, you know, it's a lot of open-minded research. Like I might have a sense that I need to look more about a very broad subject. Um, but I find a lot of, those are times when I get surprised because a lot of times the fixes for those story problems will be things that are completely unexpected. Um, the nautical books though, I grew up in a family that had Navy going back generations. And so like my father, has a, yeah, my father has a degree. Um, one of his degrees is in maritime architecture, I believe. Mm. And so like I had, you know, the search for speed wow. under sale, like just was like the big book that sat on my dad's bookshelf. And I knew, had known that book my entire life. Um, That's cool. Yeah. And he, my aunt worked in a marina, so we were always out on the water. And, um, but on the other hand, all of that was more like an affinity for that kind of thing and a general sense of, you know, I know which end of the boat goes forward uh, kind of thing. (laughs) But for those, um, it was reading the Patrick O'Brien, Aubrey Maturin books, which are so immersive that you come out of that with a lot of the world and that era and the idea of a ship as its own world. And a lot of that was, um, and that then pointed me in certain directions for the research. But yeah, so, I, I actually love research. I love it, love it, love it. So um, owning a bookstore, I discover new editions of things all the times, of course. <laughs> and they just re-release all those uh, Patrick O'Brien books with new covers and all that. Did they? And they're pretty pretty cool. Um, so it made me want to go back and reread those. Have you read like literally all of them? I've read everything but 21 um, because I can't quite bring myself to uh, the unfinished end. 
Um, I will someday, I'm sure. But I've I've read the entire series through several times, along with uh, Lobscoose and Spotted Dog, which is the one about the the foods of. He's that's another one where like food plays a huge role, and all of there's a pair of authors that went through and recreated every dish in there. Um, and then there's one called A Sea of Words, which is really just all about. Um, it has it has subsections on all different subjects like medicine in that era and then different ships and things. But then it also is just like a vocabulary book. And like, there's a word that you don't get, you can go in there, but there's a lot of, that's another one that can point you in a lot of different directions. So those are for the kids who don't know, those are the master and commander would be the first one, right? Yes. And I was going to see if I could gracefully reach for it, but but there is a, (laughs) there is a full set down there. My husband's set of the paperbacks. Nice. So yeah, those are, have you read the Horatio Hornblower books too? I read some of them and Nathan who introduced me to these, he was like, you Horatio Hornblower. He likes better. He likes Hmm. those better. I read the first one and I'm like, I don't know. It's not my favorite in the same way, Yeah, but um, I have not read all those. Well, there's definitely a bunch of kids listening who, if they haven't gotten to those, it's going to be a special treat or they're already super into them. Yeah. And they're, they are Hornblower and the master and commander. Yeah. They're unexpectedly funny and they are great books for like, particularly Hornblower reading about someone who is really good at what he does and doesn't understand how good he Mm. is. Like it's, it is a book that I think if you are someone who is inclined to feel a lot of self doubt, like Hornblower can be really inspiring. Mm. And I think that the Aubrey Maturin books, the master and commander ones, like there's such an interesting friendship behind them. It is Mm. a really interesting for me especially not being a dude like a look at these particular male friendships i thought it was a really neat relationship between these two you need to write an article about friendship and master and commander that'd be a great article oh my gosh and there's so many good ones yeah it's they're good and they're so funny they're so funny (laughs) i love them so much so i'm just sitting here in the crater of the bomb that kate just dropped that, that you can get a degree in maritime architecture. Yeah. And my whole life yeah. just feels like, what, what am I doing? What have I been doing? Yeah. So, okay. We need to do a little research here. Like, we need to understand this. Does, a, does maritime architecture mean that he is designing ships? Or is it he's, like, designing ports? Or how does this... What is this? He's a mast designer? He... Well, he doesn't do any of those things. And, and never. I mean, but when he... It was about ship architecture, naval architecture specifically, I think. So like there, I remember one of the times I went home and there just were like giant rolls of blueprints for things. And I have a bunch of them because this is the kind of thing where I'm like, dad, what are you going to do with these? They're from like the sixties and seventies. I don't know, take them. So, and I don't know what I'm going to do with them, but I've got like, you know, rolls of (laughs) (laughs) elevations and things. Ship diagrams. I like a lot. So just to clarify, he's not doing tiny model ships in bottles. No, no. I mean, and again, like, I don't know that this was ever a degree that he utilized in his life after he was in the Navy. Um, So he he went to the Naval Academy. He did his tour of duty. I was born not too long after that. And he, um, you know, worked many other jobs in corporate and um, project management and stuff like that. So he, now my aunt, but on the other hand, though, he did, he would build ship models. The ship models I saw him build, though, were out of coat hangers. Like, he would unfold and straighten coat hangers, and he would do these elaborate models out of coat hangers soldered together when I was a kid. 
I wonder where those are. They're probably That's pretty cool. around someplace. I would I would get a degree in that too. Yeah. If I could go back. Now one design. of the people one of the people who fact checked um, Left Handed Fade and Blue Crown for me is a model ship designer though, who a friend of my husband's put me into. And I went to have coffee with this guy because he was gonna be writing a book and and he was like, Hey, if I can ever like we did like a sort of pick your brain kind of thing. He was like, if I can ever be helpful. And I was revising Blue Crown at that point. And I was like, I don't know if you know anybody who knows anything about naval design in the 18, you know, Napoleonic Wars. He's like, actually, let me introduce you to David. <laughs> and so, who is a historian and designs model ships. That's nice. Yeah. We do have some questions that are like a little bit, you know, imaginary and hypothetical for you about some yeah. of your books. And so we need to like... I, th- I feel like it, we need to ask these questions because they're big gaps for Graham and I. Like, we just need these questions answered. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's so, Graham, why don't you take it away here? All right. So, Kate, you are going to come up with another story. All right. Yeah. Hypothetically. Okay. No, no. In reality, this is, okay. a, this is a challenge. Um, <laughs> okay. So, it's another story based on a piece of architecture and a material. Okay. So, which of these would you choose? We've got three options for you. You have to choose one of these. Okay. Okay. Sepia sand supermarket. Okay. Indigo ice igloo. <laughs> or pastel paneled post office. Oh, okay. I think I'd go with, I mean, my gut is to go with the post office because I feel like there's so much passing through a post office and post mm-hmm. offices tend to like have like the architecture, especially in small towns. But I mean, We've got plenty of old post offices in Brooklyn too, but like the architecture could be old and span all of these generations. And wait, what was, what were my, um, what were my adjectives there? Uh, pastel paneled. Pastel paneled. So like we could either <laughs> go with like, that's the description of the building and it's been like painted over and the layers of paint, like, you know, oh, we yeah. chipped them away. We, we, we could, we could find something under the paint. That would be mm. exciting. There's also like, you know, that, ghost ads where like ads on painted on buildings have been like painted over or erased. Like we could get under the the pastel paint on the paneling and find out what had been painted there before. And that could be really interesting. Or we could go with like actual pastels and maybe the person who works at the post office is like, you know, Wes Anderson. it's like, yeah, yeah. I could see a lot of opportunities for, for that. And we haven't even gotten into like what's being mailed in and out of there. Plus, the post office doesn't melt and an igloo melts. That's true. But on the other hand, having some restraints and having some like a time frame, that can true. be that can be very inspiring. No, too. I think you got it right. I think that's the actual <laughs> right answer. Pastel panel post office. That was the one that it was like, did someone go through like is this this is a clearly a post office in a crossroads town where like I I feel like I know that post office. So yeah. So, <laughs> so just is- for no, well, just remember when you do write that book that we get credit you where know, credit is back maybe a little bit of points on the end there <laughs> <laughs> we've never asked for points on an author's idea before okay so we've all heard that people this is a very important question kate very important this, like okay. there's a, this is um if the kids get anything out of this episode then they're going to get something out of this question okay. we've all heard that people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones but kate should people in stone houses throw glass you're going to get glass on the floor either way. Like, do you have good shoes? Are you like wandering around in your socks? I feel like <laughs> I'm not a fan of broken glass on the floor. So I think either That's way, fair. no. That's fair. But what if you're trapped in the glass house? 
Well, that's a, that's a different situation. Then you got to throw whatever you can get. It's probably going to be like, you know, a plant pot though. All right, Kate, if you were to spend one week in Nags Peak, what would be your itinerary? Oh, well, um, there's there's a, a place in left-handed fate where they go and they eat um, Nag Speaks versions of flapjacks. So I would I would go there because I know I've written extensively about the menu of that place. Um, there's also a very famous candy maker in Nag Speak who's has had a candy shop that goes back generations and she pops up in a couple of different books. So I would go there. Her candy shop is haunted. And so I would like to go and, and investigate the haunt. And then I feel like I'd want to be staying in one of the houses in Bayside, which in my mind are very much like the, the gray ladies from the Outer Banks. So it'd be like this big old rambling house where you could sit and watch the water if you didn't feel like going out. I'd go to the printer's quarter because that's where like, you know, there's, there's artists and writers there and there'd probably be some neat shops and I'd want to get up to the Liberty of Gammerbund, but I would have to have someone I knew there invite me in. <laughs> I love all this talk of the Outer Banks. We live in North Carolina, so oh. I love, I love the Outer Banks. So. Since I was a kid, since I was a kid. Well, Graham, what do you say? Should we do the word of the week now? Uh, yeah, I think it's time. So Graham, that means that it is time for you to, um, yes. We're going to have to see how well you execute your task this week. It's been a little hit or miss, I'm going to say. Mostly, it hasn't even really been a hit or miss. It's mostly just been a lot of misses, if I'm being honest. Just, we're friends. I feel like I can be honest with you. So, no pressure. Uh, well, okay. Yeah, I mean, the last time it, it wandered away, but I, I went out and found it. So, I've got it right here. You, you, you did find it, right? Yes. Yep. Yep, I found it. Um, so let me uh, just uh, push these buttons here. Beep, boop, pop, boop, beep. Uh, Graham? Yes. Uh, that was that 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 was just you. There was no that that was just you making that looks like a cardboard box that you just drew buttons on, and then you made sound effects. Yeah. Okay. So I I yeah, it wandered away. It hasn't come back. And I can't find it. So we don't. You're saying we don't have a printer. It's nope. just gone. The printer's just it's gone. gone. <sighs> Graham, it's like over a million now. You know what? Know. Give us a minute. We're going to come back with the word of the week in just a second. Logan, put a cool sound effect here just to make up for what Graham just did. <laughs> we actually, we found the word of the week despite the fact that all we had was a cardboard box. Um, and cardboard boxes rarely print things that you, when you need them to. So here is our word of the week. Kate, Graham, are you ready? Yes. Okay. The word of the week is rantipole. R-A-N-T-I-P-O-L-E. Now, I suppose it's possible one should pronounce it rantipoli um, or something else, but I, being uneducated the way that I am, I'm just going to say rantipole. Kate, do you, do you have an alternative pronunciation right, for wait. this? Give me, give me the spelling once more. R-A-N-T-I-P-O-L-E. Um, I mean, I think I would read that as Rantipole, but Rantipoli also sounds... Sounds like a place in the, in the uh, Master and Commander books. Yes, or a beverage. <laughs> true, true. Okay, let's take a minute then to write down what we think this word means, and we'll be right back. All 
All right, everybody, we are back. We have our definitions for the word rentipole, rentipoli, however you want to pronounce it. Graham, as is our custom, you have to go first. Okay, I'm glad I get to go first because I feel like the definition is obvious and I want to be the first one to say it. Okay, let's find out. Go ahead. Okay, so the rantipole, as we all know, is the pole in the middle of town where for one hour per day, you can go there and have a tirade about anything you want. Oh, the rantipole. Okay. Yeah, but not with impunity. Like people will have like <laughs> vegetables and like, you, you know, you're taking your life in your hands a little bit, but... It's like the stocks, but optional. But if the community agrees with you, maybe <laughs> things get changed. <laughs> the rantipole, okay. So um, I chose to go a little bit more of the, the rentipoli you know, pronunciation. And I think that that might just be um, the technical term for a British warship made of hangers once it's been tucked inside a glass bottle and set adrift. <laughs> oh, so you're like somewhere in the attic, my father has his rantipole yeah. uh, models. Maybe, maybe even a collection. Yes, set adrift. So, no, yep. Well, I mean, I guess I mean, if you were to put them in, in a bathtub or. So that seems know. like a good thing to like scour the beach for. Like you look for your shark's yeah. teeth and your rantipoles. There is a nag speak saint who uh, is the patron saint of things sent in bottles. Huh. And that is St. Pontila. No kidding. I did, did just not make know that. that. I did not. That's yeah. <laughs> that would have been impressive. All right. Well, you think if you think you can do better, we, we want to hear it. I don't know if I can do better. I kind of like your rantipole ships there. I think that rantipole is the adjective describing the person in the room most likely to break into arguments over absolutely nothing. So like the rantipole <laughs> member of your family is <laughs> the one you have to make sure doesn't get overserved on Thanksgiving. <laughs> With what, turkey? Anything. Yeah. Because they don't need an excuse. Right. Exactly. Right. <laughs> you know, the funny thing is you, <laughs> you're actually by far the closest of the three of us. So, and, and ironically, oh man. So there's this book called Wild Words or something like that. And it's got these amazing words and then illustrations. And I don't know if you can see it, but it actually next to this word, oh, I wish you could see it. I took a screenshot on my phone. It oh. looks like the remnants of a Thanksgiving dinner. Oh, um, there's, there's like a, there's masks and desserts and all that kind of stuff. Although people don't really wear masks to Thanksgiving, do they? Okay, so here is what rantipole means. It can either be a noun that means a wild, reckless young person or an, a, a verb that means to be wild and reckless or an adjective, which is wild and reckless. So you're definitely the closest of all of us. We had some overlap here. Like the, the, the ranting, like I feel like what's missing in that definition is the argument. Like I of your actual ranting pole, rantipole. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's cool. I like that one. I'll try and work that one into the story about the pastel paneled. Um, <laughs> yes. But just yeah. don't forget about the royalties. Yeah. We, in, yeah. The extra points. If, if there are royalties, if, if, if there are royalties <laughs> ever, sure. Mm. <laughs> what? That sounded binding. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on. We just have two final questions for you before we let you go. One is what advice would you offer to young, you know, young writers, kids who are listening, who want to do what you do one day? The one I sort of go to most is to not feel like you need to know where a story is going or even what you're writing to sit down and have the pleasure of starting a scene or writing something between a couple of characters. Um, I think a lot of people, young writers and established writers, like you can get paralyzed 
by thinking that if you're going to write a story, you need to know what that story is about and you need to know where that story is going. And a lot of the pleasure of it can be figuring that out as you go and surprising yourself along the way. And also like those, those little scenes and experiments and things like that can be fun. Like sometimes you don't know where a story is going, but it can still be worth doing. That's great advice. So, and the, and the last thing we always ask our authors is if you have an author friend or illustrator um, that you would want to challenge to come onto our show and have to endure the gauntlet. <laughs> oh. So who do you not like, I think is the question. Who do I not like? Um, <laughs> yeah, could you just list a bunch of authors you don't like? Well, it's so funny. <laughs> who are your enemies? Some of, some of my <laughs> some of my favorite authors um among them are people who told me i should come on this show so i thought they were my friends but maybe (laughs) um and and because of that like i feel like i i know some people who have come on your show you know who i think would be a fantastic person to talk to i just recently did a panel with ayana gray whose um first book beasts of prey just came out last month and that i enjoyed that panel so much i enjoyed that book so much i read it beforehand and she is another world builder a folklore lover she is someone who spent so much time and care in building this world and then setting these amazing characters loose into it and i wish that I had had hours more to talk on her panel. So I think you should get Diana Gray to come on. That's, that's a great idea. Um, I always love discovering like when new books come out and other authors love them. It, that, it's always fun. Her book is neat too, because it kind of falls into this, like it's an, it's, it's not middle grade. It's, it's YA, but it's a very like, I, I think that it would be something where I'm always looking for books that work well for that sort of 13 to 15 year group, which I think a lot of times gets neglected in yeah. middle grade. And this book so. is just perfect for that age range. Yeah. Cause so much of the YA is actually for like such a huge percentage of people who read YA is actually people in their twenties. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, and, and, and a lot of kids, you know, are, are looking for things that are, you know, giving them a sense of what it's going to be like to be, you know, having those things. But I think there's also like, there is a, a big space that we aren't great at getting at in publishing, which is that sort of like, I call it upper middle grade. And there's a lot of people who are working really hard to fill that gap. But I do think that population of readers is still underserved and mm-hmm. Beasts of Prey is great fantasy for any age, but really good. Like it would be perfect for that group too. Well, Kate, thanks so much for, for coming on and taking the time and telling us stories and talking about your stories. We're really grateful to talk to you. And I think, I think it, this might be a Christmas season to revisit some, some Kate Milford books. So. Nags Peak is waiting and fully stocked with hot chocolate and cider and um, all of those things. <laughs> Ready Perfect. for you whenever you go. <laughs> thanks again. Absolutely. Thank you. Well, thanks to Kate Milford for coming on the podcast and chatting with us. That was a good time. Graham, are you okay? I didn't realize we were starting again, and I had a mouthful of um, superfood. Superfood. Uh, <laughs> Do you feel stronger? So I'm update on that. Well, okay. So yeah, during the break, I ate all these pomegranate seeds. Yep. Went uh, went out on the roof, um, and jumped off, and did not fly. So I've did, got a ways to go. Did, how would the landing go? Painful. <laughs> Painful. I was going to say, if you at least landed softly, then maybe you were getting cat power. Oh, that's good. Yeah. No, I didn't get that yet. Also, kids, don't jump off of high places. Grandma, I gotta say, mm-hmm. what, you're starting to look a little bit like a pomegranate. 
Oh. So maybe you should slow down. Because maybe that might be power. a trade off. Maybe that's power. Aubergine power. Aubergine, <laughs> Aubergine skin power. <laughs> I like that. Well, okay, here we are at Riddle Time. It's the last thing we do in these episodes. Riddle Time. Last week, I told a riddle. Yeah, do you remember it? Yeah, it was about a pirate. Yeah, do you remember the pirate's name? Oh, did he have a name? Bernard Abad. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> On Bernard Abad's revenge. <laughs> That's right. So, <laughs> <laughs> So he was on Bernard Abad's revenge mm-hmm. and he was, two of his sailors were facing opposite directions. One was facing east and one was facing west. And yet they were looking right at each other. How is this possible? No, yet they could see each other. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the an- you just told the answer. And moving on to the next. <laughs> yeah, well, the answer to that riddle was that they were each standing on opposite sides of the boat with their back to the sides of the boat yeah. facing one another. We didn't say, you didn't say which sailor was facing which way. So when True. you, when you say True. the riddle, it seems like they're both facing out. One, True. The one is looking west and facing west. One is looking east and facing east. But actually, they're turned looking at each other. Exactly. So, the, so it was looking west across the other side of the boat and east across the other side. Yeah. Of the boat. So we had a lot of people write in and a lot of people get the answer right. And, mo- and I'd say 50% of them said the hardest part about this riddle was explaining the answer, so, <laughs> which is true. That's hard. I couldn't, I couldn't do it. Yeah. So that brings us to this week's riddle. Yeah. I've got the riddle for this week. All right. You ready? I'm ready. All right. A man. Uh, Thomas Tingletoes. Thomas he, Tingletoes? He's wearing, he's wearing the socks. He's, oh, he's wearing pop socks? Yeah. Oh, man. Okay, fine. <laughs> Thomas, tingle toes. Uh, <laughs> it was, a, was a, uh, a maker of great spears and shields. Oh, he's an armorer. He's an armorer. Okay. And, and he happens to be named Thomas Tingletoes. <laughs> Seems well, strange, but we'll go well, with he, that. He took that name once he started wearing pop socks. Once he's a, it was an established armor. Right. Yeah. Then he felt he could finally change his name to Tingletoes. When you've got your, when you're like, when you've established yourself in a career, you can name yourself whatever. Oh goodness. Okay. A man. I mean, Thomas uh, was a great armor. He made spears and shields, and he came to a great king's court. Okay. He said, "Your Majesty, nobody can make shields and spears that equal mine. Okay. My shields are so strong." Nothing can pierce them. So he says he's the greatest of all the armorers. Yeah. My, okay. and, and my spears are so sharp that there's nothing they cannot pierce. Okay. And the king kind of chuckled. And he said, Thomas, I can prove you wrong on one count, certainly. Impossible, said Thomas Tingletoes. <laughs> How did the great king prove Thomas wrong? Ooh, that's a good one. What's the great king's name? Uh, Jeremy. (laughs) Jeremy the greatest? (laughs) Jeremy. The great king of all king Jeremy's. Yeah. That's, uh, it's just Jeremy. Jeremy. Oh, okay. So we've got Thomas. He doesn't like being called king. He's a humble, he's a humble king. (laughs) Yeah. He likes Jeremy. Okay. All right. So Thomas Tingletoes encounters the Jeremy. Yeah. Who happens to be a king and... How does Jeremy prove Thomas Tingletoes wrong? Yes. Okay. Man, we're getting confusing here. (laughs) (laughs) But that's okay. You guys are smart. You'll get it. That's right. So if you want to submit an answer, Graham, how do they do that? They will email us at podcasts at com. 
Okay. And they can also just go to goldberrybooks.com, click on the little menu link that says Goldberry Gear, and you can find Withywindle shirts there. Whoa. That has nothing to do with riddle time. I'm just going telling you, you can go buy a Withywindle shirt. Yeah, and then you could wear it around, and then you could tell all your friends riddles and say... It's a thing we do on Withy Windle. Yeah, it's a thing, you know. Yeah. You it's could a, also, you could it's even. It's a Withy Windle thing. Yeah, you could even throw in a little like, you wouldn't understand, <laughs> which will make them want to listen, you know. Or don't do that. Just tell them to go listen. Yeah. But a little reverse psychology sometimes, you know. You can throw it out. You there. should definitely not eat more superfoods. <laughs> <laughs> well, that brings us to the end of this episode. Grab happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to everyone who's been listening to. We are grateful. We are thankful for all of you who are listening, all the families that have become loyal listeners and given us feedback and left reviews and made drawings and sent us gifts and sent us riddles to the answers and all the other great things that you guys do. We're really grateful yeah, for you. But the, I don't think anybody sent us a riddle to the answer. Did I say that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, but they're, I they're dare welcome. you. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the answer. <laughs> Coconut. <laughs> now send us your riddle. <laughs> well, uh, also, we are thankful to our sponsor, who is our good friend, uh, Samuel Dennison Smithertons, also known as S.D. Smith. You can find out more and look at free samples on The Green Writer at, green, at greenwriter.sdsmith.com. And don't forget that the discount code for 10% off is Withy Windle. With that, that brings us to the end of this episode of Withy Windle. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Goodbye. <laughs>